Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your hosts, Rick Lawrence and Becky Hodges, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 3, Episode 11, brought to you by Lifetree at PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. Should I say that again? Because that's like a whole sentence as an Earl. PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. If you say it fast, it sounds like a short thing. But my name is Rick. I'm author of The Jesus-Centered Life and the upcoming book, Spiritual Grit, which releases in late April. So it's uh, just around the corner now. It feels like uh, I have been in spiritual grit land for my whole life now, and now I'm just waiting for the baby to be born, so to speak. I know it's awkward whenever a man talks about giving birth to a baby because it's totally inauthentic and inappropriate, but I just did it anyway. So I'm also the general editor of the Jesus-Centered Bible, and today um, is International Women's Day, the day that we're recording this, obviously not the day that you're listening to it, and that is not the reason that we are welcoming back the Becky Nader to the podcast today. It would be nice if we planned this out and said, as a way to honor the Becky Nader, we'll have her on, we'll record on International Women's Day, but it's just a happy accident instead. So, No, she, it's just the reason why you decided to say that you were having a baby. <laughs> That's why you said that, is because it's International Women's Day. Oh. <laughs> like, women around the world having babies. I do most of what I do that's really good, totally by accident. So, yeah. Well, if you're new to the podcast, uh, Becky Hodges is the longtime co-host of this little labor of love, and now she's pursuing some new adventures in her life. Uh, But every now and then, she said she's up for returning um, and being on the podcast. She can keep me in line. Uh, She she holds my feet to the fire sometimes, which um, is good, and... I was thinking about this as she was coming back on today, that every time Becky comes back on, I think of that uh, Humphrey Bogart line in Casablanca, of all the gin joints and all the towns in all the world, she walks into this one. So we could we could just call this podcast a gin joint if we wanted to, and every now and then, the Becky Nader walks back into it. So, well, welcome back. That's what happens when Rick starts... Doing the script. Right. Yeah, it just goes all all higgledy-piggledy. So welcome back, Becky Nader. Hey, can you give us a, a little update on what you're up to now? Well, um, van renovations are going well. Um, my van actually looks like it's a place that you could live. You know what's so I funny have... about this is for anybody who's tuning in for the first time to this podcast, that is like the most bizarre statement to, to hear somebody say, well, the van renovation's going well. It looks like I'll be able to live in it pretty well. <laughs> my homeless, my plan to be homeless is looking good. I have a bed in my van. I have shelves and I have cabinetry. And we ordered all the stuff that we need to wire the refrigerator and my heater. So... Things are going really well for my homeless expedition. Yeah, Becky. Becky's is, Becky's like a Jesus hippie. That's uh, she's she's uh, she's a Jesus hippie. We've mentioned before on this podcast that Jesus was homeless. Uh huh. So and also a hippie, yeah. I guess. So I'm also my little marketing firm that I started like a month ago 
actually have clients that are paying me. <laughs> Woohoo! Wow, those two things. You can't take that for granted that you have both clients and clients that pay you. So. And a place to sleep. So this is really good. So you should tell you should you should tell everyone what uh what what your website is so they can go take a look at what you do. So my website for my marketing is beckyharringtonmarketing.com and so you can uh check that out and you can probably pick up on the fact that my new last name is actually Harrington now. So um, you can check me out um, both on Facebook on, and on Instagram under Becky Harrington Marketing. Um, I'm working out of a co-working space, which is not the same as working at group publishing, but people smile at me and they say hello in the morning and get this. Yesterday, I got invited by a group of them to go out for coffee. It was a really big day for wow, me. Wow, and, so. and you know what's sad is that none of those things ever happened to Becky when she was here at group. Nobody ever smiled. <laughs> Nobody ever said good morning, and she never went for coffee. So uh-uh. it's a real upgrade. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'm so glad you're back uh, back on today. And I asked Becky to be on this podcast because I, I thought this was really in her sweet spot. So I'm excited to dive into this. For a month, we've been exploring what you might call the basics of the Christian life. Um, and we're, we're doing that by paying better attention to the way Jesus lived and taught about these basics, these foundations in our life. And the question, that kind of the overarching question the, uh, for the whole year that all of this is kind of uh, nestling underneath is tied to the central question in the book Spiritual Grit that's coming out in April, and that question is, what does it mean to grow in our spiritual grit? And grit is perseverance and resilience and pushing through for the long term, having people who have grit stay with things uh, like they're a marathon instead of a sprint, but what does it mean to have spiritual grit, the kind of grit and strength and perseverance that comes from our attachment to Jesus and our intimate relationship with Him, not just our own reserves of strength? What does that look like, and how do we grow in it? That's kind of the macro question for the year, and this week we're going to focus on a question that really targets the core—something that's core to our everyday life, and that's this question— why can't we simply decide for ourselves what's right? Why can't we simply decide for ourselves what's right? And if we—I I love this question, because if we slow down and consider the building blocks of our everyday life, like what we do on a daily basis, and we paid attention to those things through the lens of right and wrong, how do we make decisions about what's right and what's wrong, uh, we would quickly find out that we make tons and tons of right and wrong decisions— Every single day, we just we don't, we're not always aware of how many we're making. So, really, everything we are, everything we do, is driven by what we believe is right and what we believe is wrong. So, Becky, like, what, what are some examples that you can think of from your everyday life where you're making decisions about right and wrong? Well, I'm definitely in a place right now where every decision is pretty crucial. Um, it matters a lot, and. I could get really hung up on making the wrong decisions. And I've had to really, one, I've had to really be in a place of total dependence where I'm just saying, I don't really know which way to go, but I know that which way I go is pretty important. And so I'm going to need you to show me. Um, and that, that's down to like every, every penny I spend, every decision I make about work, um, every single thing that I'm doing right now, 
has to be pretty calculated because I'm operating at a place where I don't have a lot of room for things to go wrong for me. But I also have had to just be really careful to not get caught up when something doesn't go the way I thought it was going to go. That's good. Um, and I've been looking at my daily journal, um, and then I go back and look at you know what I wrote a few days ago, and and I can tell you there's things on there that I'm like, yeah, that totally worked out, and there's things on there that it was like, wow, I thought that that really had to work out, and it didn't work out, and it doesn't matter. Mm. So. I think that in our daily life, we can get really hung up on things that, that we think matter a lot. And then at the end of it, it didn't really matter. That that wasn't what Jesus was going to focus on. And so when you let him redirect you hmm. um, and you're paying attention to that, I think that you won't get so down on yourself when you make a decision that wasn't what you planned to be the right decision. Yeah, and you just said an interesting phrase there. You said about you said if if you're paying attention to that, and that really this this whole deal is about what are we paying attention to when we determine which is the right way to go, which is the wrong way to go. What are we paying attention to in ourselves to sort of make those decisions? And uh, I, I'm thinking about a couple of things from my life in the last 24 hours. Uh, one was my daughter Emma is a freshman in high school is working on a research paper, kind of a significant paper that has multiple huge stretches uh, that she has to write. And so she's trying to learn research skills and how to cite things and trying to understand how to put together a logical argument about something. And so she's. Uh, I work at home part of the week, and so sometimes when I'm uh, working at home, I work out in a in a in the general area with some headphones on or something. Well, I happened to be doing this the other day, and she kept interrupting me to ask me questions about the research stuff she was going through, and I had to keep asking myself, is this the right thing to do to respond to her? Should I give her an answer, or should I ask her another question? So embedded in that decision is what's right and wrong for Emma owning her own education. So I had to decide in the moment what is the right thing to do, what's the wrong thing to do, and then... The other thing that just popped in my head is later today, we have the sad, sad necessity of putting down our cat, Penny. Penny is about 12 years old. Uh, she's an eccentric, weirdo, tender-hearted cat, and uh, she's been a part of our family for a long time. She's just—we can't really imagine a world without our cat, Penny— but it, she started getting sick a couple weeks ago, and now we've uh, learned that she has— a kidney disease that is fatal. So we've made the decision to not, you know, just try to make her comfortable longer, but to get get her out of pain. And so today we're uh, going to be going to the vet and putting her down. And but before we found out exactly what was wrong with her, I had said to my wife, you know, it's expensive taking the cat to the vet. How many times are we going to take her to the vet? At what level do we stop trying to deal with whatever her problem is? So in the middle of that conversation, is it's shot through with what is right and wrong. How do you make a decision whether to keep prolonging the life of a pet or whether uh, you're going to put that pet down? Where, where do you draw the line? That's full of right and wrong. And in the case of my wife and I, we come at this from different perspectives, too. So we had to kind of figure out right and wrong together. Uh, and in the end, we decided that the right thing to do would be to let her, and, and, and here's some of my wonky theology, let Penny go be with Jesus. 
there are animals listed uh, in in both the Old and New Testament that are uh, with God or in the kingdom of God. And I think, okay, <laughs> and if he cares for the sparrows and the lilies of the field, why wouldn't he care that our dear little Penny is with him? So uh, I think uh, Penny is going to be pretty happy um, after today, even though we're going to be pretty sad. So those are some examples. I really hope that you're right about that, Rick, because I am really bummed that I never got to see dinosaurs. So oh, yeah. There's dinosaurs also in the kingdom of well, God, but they don't eat anybody. Yeah, only if they were pets. So, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot resting on that. My pet brontosaurus, oh. yeah. Well, these, these are obviously everyday ways that, that we have to wrestle with right and wrong. We may not understand that what we're doing is wrestling with right and wrong in the midst of these. We're just trying to make decisions and figure out what's right for us. But why can't we simply decide for ourselves what is right? That's a question that's more than a rhetorical question. We know as Christians we're really not supposed to decide for ourselves what's right, right? So, uh, Becky, I wonder—you've uh, talked before on the podcast about uh, some of the kind of the guidelines and standards you grew up under. So those standards for right and wrong that you grew up with, uh, what now in retrospect, what did you like and not like about those standards of right and wrong when you were growing up? Well, I was—of course, Rick put me on the spot about this, but I, I did do some thinking on this, and one thing that was pretty prevalent in our family is that it was very important that no matter what, the outside world would look in on our home and think that everything was perfect. That was a high standard in our home. That that was almost um, like a, a top moral, um, that even if everything wasn't okay um, going on with us, that from the outside, that anyone looking in would see um, perfection. So and what you're saying is that it would be wrong in your family system to be authentic about the reality of your life. It would be inappropriate. Uh-huh. Yeah, it would be inappropriate. You would be oversharing or being dramatic. That would be a word that would you would, would be used. Um, and so it would be better to be controlled. Um, the other thing is that there was an idea that that you had to work really hard to be right, that the way that you are already made had a lot of things that were wrong with it. And so there was a try harder to get better mentality. Um, there was a lot of shoulds and opinions. So that was a way that was celebrated in our home. And part of that was hard work, discipline, um, perseverance. Those are all really good things. But they were over-celebrated to the point where it was kind of exhausting to live up to the standards. And it's only been in my adult life that I've realized that there are a lot of ways that I was made right out of the gate that were perfect because they were the way that God made me. And um, I think those could have been celebrated more. Hmm. And then, you know, physical appearance and um, possessions were highly celebrated in our house. So anything that you did to acquire a better physical appearance, anything that you did to have um, possessions was was a good thing. Those were good things. And these so. and these things kind of get, and especially when you're a kid, get kind of embedded in your default setting for what is right and wrong, and it kind of carries with you into your life. So when you're when you're making decisions, do I go to this college or that college? Do I buy this car or that car? Do I rent or do I buy a house? All of these things feed into this sort of DNA that we that we get from growing up about what the right thing to do is and what the wrong thing to do is, 
And a lot of these things are simply unexamined. Even when we commit our lives to Jesus and we are on this path to becoming a new creation and that we're trying to live into our new identity that has been born over again, we carry with us some of this default setting of what we were uh, told or socialized into what, what is right and wrong in our, in our family system. And so when th- this cry, why can't we simply decide for ourselves what is right, can sound like uh, kind of like, a, like the secret cry of our heart, like a rebellious battle cry or a, a frustration that we have sometimes in living a life of following Jesus. We, we get kind of in a secret interior way frustrated that we can't just go our own way sometimes, or uh, we, we kind of hide uh, under the shadows the, the real choices we make because um, we know we're supposed to make this choice, but but we really want to make this choice, so we hide in the shadows around that. But what's, uh, what's shocking is that this question, why can't we simply decide for ourselves what is right, is actually a question that Jesus asks in Luke chapter 12. Uh, I'm going to just read you a little bit of context, and then Becky and I are going to dive into all of chapter 12 of Luke to explore what the heck Jesus is talking about here. I'm going to kind of set this up a little bit. He's uh, with a vast crowd, and among the vast crowd are some Pharisees and teachers of the law that in Luke 12 says that these guys are peppering Jesus with questions, and they're hostile questions. They're trying to trap him. So that's kind of the climate. There's some respected religious leaders that all of the crowds of people that are there are are, uh, supposed to follow everything they say, and they are openly hostile to Jesus. And so it's a crowded, noisy, chaotic situation with some hostile people that are trying to trap Jesus. And at the end of chapter 12, um, we're going to backtrack, by the way, back to the start again, but I want to go to the end of chapter 12 first, because Jesus says something interesting here at the end. He says to the crowd, when you see clouds beginning to form in the West, you say, well, here comes a shower, and you're right. And when the south wind blows, you say, well, today's going to be a scorcher, and it is. You fools, you know how to interpret the weather signs of the earth and the sky, but you don't know how to interpret the present times. And then here it comes. Why can't you decide for yourselves what is right? Why can't you decide for yourselves what is right? I think this is an extraordinary moment because Jesus is saying, um, why aren't you able to determine the consequences of things and how things work in the present time on your own? If you, if you study the weather and know what the weather's going to be like, why can't you study other things and discern between, for instance, what these hypocritical religious leaders are putting out to you and what the truth is? How come you can't discern that on your own? Why can't you decide for yourself what's right? I, I'd like to go back to the, the beginning of Luke 12 and kind of walk through an overview of the whole chapter now that we've set up what Jesus said at the end. And the context is, again, this huge crowd, hypocritical Pharisees. Jesus is warning the Pharisees there in the beginning of chapter 12, warning the people about the Pharisees in the beginning of chapter 12. Let me just read you that little part. After the, uh, 
a, a little episode where the Pharisees are asking these hostile questions to Jesus, he turns first to his disciples and he warns them, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, their hypocrisy. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, their hypocrisy. So um, the, the, then later on, he's talking about, at the end, interpreting the present time. So I want to connect these two things together here real quick. Um, the yeast of the Pharisees. So we know that yeast is a small thing that if you add it into the dough, it permeates through the whole um, uh, ball of dough and makes it expand and rise. So yeast is just another way of saying a small thing that makes a huge difference. So he's, he's saying to his disciples, watch out for these little things that the Pharisees are planting, because they make a huge difference. Beware of their yeast. So Becky, uh, I, I wanted to ask you, uh, as we think about these two things, um, how do you interpret what this yeast is that Jesus is warning people about, and why does he have to warn them about it? And then the other one is, what's your take on what Jesus is trying to communicate about interpreting the present time? What, what, is, what the heck does that mean? So there's two questions there, and uh, I'd love for you to kind of address them one at a time. What, what, do you, what do you think about the yeast that Jesus is warning about? What, what is that? How do you translate that in this situation? So I, when I think about the yeast, I think about, um, I think about being American. So we are Americans. We live... We were lucky enough to be born between a set amount of borders that made us American. And when we talk about what important things, like, um, you know, the other day I was having a conversation about immigration, particularly um, immigration from Mexico. And I spent a lot of time in Mexico, my whole childhood, my young adult life, across the border, um, living culturally with people in Mexico. And so I have a deep love for Mexico and I know all about the border. I've crossed it many, many times. And I think sometimes when we think about what is right and what is wrong in some of these situations, we can forget about what, who Jesus is and what he would say about people in need, because we add a new thing called being American. Um, and so because we're American, we draw lines and borders and boundaries that I don't think that Jesus would necessarily see or care about. And so that would be an example of a small thing that is about us that can permeate into our ideology, our, like the way that we view everything, the way that we view right and wrong choices about laws that can be made or the way that we treat people. I think being American can be a yeast in our society. Oh, we got to stop right there because I think this is fascinating what you brought up. That um, and, and I don't want to go down a political route. Right. You know that I don't. Right, and then it's 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 only important as it as it uh, relates to kind of the everyday way we have to live our lives. And what you're pointing out is that um, small things, including our perspective on things like uh, immigration policy and things like that. Uh, small things can develop into huge things that develop into life-changing beliefs that that mean life or death for people, or security or not security for our country. These are all things that that are uh, that we adopt and kind of are embedded in us, and we don't even notice them that much. But they find bigger and bigger expression, and we're in a culture right now of massive expressions of these 
these uh, planted seeds of belief in ourselves. And, and a lot of the conflict that we are seeing right now is the result of living in an environment with, with uh, these seeds that have grown up or the, this yeast that has infected the whole dough. Now it's just uh, the, the loaf is pretty big. <laughs> it's hard to miss now. So, and, and I think that also, if, you know, I think that pastors can end up being yeast as well. I, I, I think that if you are in a place where the, the only place that you're consuming um, God's word or the only relationship that you have with Jesus is through whatever your pastor says at your church, that's the same kind of thing where you're not actually the one who is consuming it and suddenly everything you have to say about Jesus is, well, my pastor says, or my, at my church, they say, or even you can start doing it with Rick Lawrence. Well, Rick Lawrence says, yeah. <laughs> careful, careful of the yeast of Rick Lawrence and, and, and Becky. Careful. Yeah. Don't want to either. <laughs> and, and in this case, Jesus is saying, he's not saying yeast is bad. He's not saying that what I have to say or what Becky has to say or what your pastor has to say is on the face of it bad. He's saying, beware of the particular yeast of these Pharisees. Be- pay attention to the small thing that they're planting in you that is creating your worldview, creating a sense of what's right and wrong for you. Beware of that kind of yeast. And that, he, he will say about every kind of yeast that does not mesh with or agree with the truth about the kingdom of God. He will, he will warn us about yeast that would never grow or never be planted in the kingdom of God. And, it, and, if we, and Becky, if we skip again back to the, the very end of, of chapter 12 of Luke, when Jesus says, um, you know, he says, you guys are fools, you know how to interpret the weather signs of the earth and sky, but you don't know how to interpret the present times. So that phrase interpreting the present time, what, what does that mean to you? How, how do you translate what that means? Well, I think, you know, Rick, everything you've been doing this month and the reason why um, the, the practical guides were developed and the reason why you spend time in spiritual grit, specifically talking about the basics of the faith, is that how to pray and how to understand God's will and how to read the Bible, those things are going to be the, the guideposts that are going to give you uh, the, the basic fundamentals to be able to read the signs of the kingdom versus the signs of the world around you. Mm. And I think that's why it's so important. You're going to know what's yeast and what's not yeast because you are founded in such great basics in your faith. Um, and that's why if we've always emphasized from the very beginning that you have your own personal relationship with Jesus, that you have your own personal prayer life, that you have your own way of reading and understanding the Bible so that you can have the, the core strength um, to recognize those very shifting times that we're in now that we've always been in and be able to see um, the weather patterns that are coming in and understand what, what is causing them. Yeah, and in Jesus' little illustration of yeast, in that metaphor, we are the lump of dough. And what he's saying is, don't allow in yeast to you, don't invite yeast into you that is like what the Pharisees are putting out there. Because if you invite the Pharisees' yeast into you, it'll seem like a little thing at the time, 
but it's going to grow in you, and it's going to burgeon, and pretty soon it's going to uh, dominate your worldview and dominate what you think is right and wrong, because you let this yeast in. So he's, he's trying to say here, be awake and alive to the yeast around you. What are you allowing in? And you're pointing out here, Becky, how do we discern between the kinds of yeast that are around us? How do we know what to invite in and what not to invite in? And we have some things that he's given us to help us with that. We have a, a book that is incredibly helpful in the Bible to help us understand the heart of Jesus and what he stands for and what the kingdom of God is all about. We also have a direct experiential relationship with Jesus through the Holy Spirit that also helps us to understand our boundaries and what, what the Spirit says is right and wrong. We, and we have community around us, other uh, people that are in the body of Christ who also are representing a unique perspective on the person of Jesus through their life, and they also help us to discern which yeast to invite in and which yeast not to. Uh, so all of these things matter because we are essentially, as human beings, consumers. We, we consume things. That's what it means to be human. And I'm not just talking about going to the mall here, obviously. We consume food, we consume uh, goods and services, but we also consume ideas and beliefs. We ingest them, and then they become part of us like little bits of yeast leavening the whole dough of our identity. So the question is, um, when Jesus says, well, why can't you simply decide for yourself what's right? It's kind of a—it feels like a dangerous question, because isn't that exactly what the Pharisees were doing? They were deciding for themselves what is right, and Jesus was, was countering them, was exposing them, because what they were saying was right and wrong wasn't true. So this question that he asks the crowd, why can't you decide what is right for yourself, is, I think, a volatile one. So, um, and Becky, I gave a list of a few things that, that we kind of consume on an everyday basis, but what's your perspective on us as human beings who consume? What else do we consume from your perspective? Well, we, we consume um, a terrible lot of things. I mean, we, <laughs> we consume... Tons of social media. We've talked about that a lot. Um, we consume a ton of Netflix and cable television. Um, we are starting to consume a lot more um, Eastern ideas that are, you know, kind of rooted in, uh, they call it more like Western Hinduism because it's not as, it's not the same as Eastern Hinduism, but we're starting to consume a lot more self-help ideas that are rooted in Eastern ideas. And I think sometimes we don't even realize that we are um, consuming those ideas. Self-help is a huge one. We're consuming a lot of how to get rich fast and how to be more disciplined and how to um, live a more perfect life, how to be a millionaire. Those kinds of things are things that we're consuming in our everyday world. We're consuming a lot right now, um, in the news, the news is a hard thing to consume right now with all of the violence and whether or not we should be more restrictive towards guns or if we're being too restrictive towards guns. There's a lot of, of things that we're consuming that um, can be stressful to us, um, that are hard decisions that we have to make, that we have to discern what is right. We have to engage in healthy conversation about those things. 
Um, so and at their and, world, and, 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 and at their basis here, if you think about what consumption is, it's taking something from outside yourself, inside yourself, and then that thing you took inside yourself becomes part of you. It becomes a part of who you are. And this is why Jesus is raising the alarm bell. Um, it, uh, he recognizes that as human beings, we're created to consume, and therefore it's in incredibly important that we pay attention to what we're putting inside of us. Because it's not just going inside of us, um, it's going inside of us and becoming part of us. And the yeast that he uh, does not want us to consume with the, with the Pharisees and teachers of the law are things that are not true. He does not want us to consume untruth so that it then becomes a part of us, so that then as we decide what's right and wrong in our lives, we're depending on things that aren't true, and they're destructive even. So in between the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and this warning about their yeast and the challenge to interpret the present time and decide for yourselves what's right, Jesus—it's interesting here—he has uh, he, he wants to set the record straight in four different areas. So he's, he's kind of giving an example in the moment of uh, contrasting a truth about the kingdom of God versus one of these yeast truths that people have adopted or accepted. And he's trying to delineate, look what you consumed here. What you consumed wasn't good, it's destructive, and there's a contrast to what you consumed that is actually true in the kingdom of God. So these four things that he wants to set the record straight on are greed, anxiety, and our uh, awakeness or our preparedness, and then the last one is the purpose of the Messiah's mission, which is a huge deal at the at the very end of this. He's trying to set the record straight about what the Messiah really came to do. So let me just give you a summary of each one of these little contrasts, and then uh, Becky and I are going to focus on the point that Jesus is making in each one of these. What is the truth of the kingdom of God that he's trying to highlight and what is the contrasting, um, uh, you know, bad yeast that he's he's trying to point out? So this first one is uh, in in our Jesus-centered Bible. The heading over the top of it is called. Oh, I flipped pages, so let me flip back. the uh, The heading over the first one is called the parable of the rich fool. So just as a kind of an overview here, somebody in the crowd asks uh, Jesus, "Hey, teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me." So this guy is saying, hey, here's an authority figure. If he, if this rabbi up here tells my brother to give me half of the inheritance, whether or not I deserve it, then my brother's going to have to do it. And so Jesus responds to him, hey, buddy, who made me judge over you to decide such things as that? And then he says, beware, uh, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. And then he tells this little story, the parable of the rich fool, this guy who decides that he's going to uh, work hard to build these storage barns so that he can store up and store up and store up stuff in those barns so that later on he can sit back and just kind of take life easy and say, yeah, I've got enough uh, stored for years to come. I've sacrificed my life in the present moment to build up these storehouses so that in the future I'll have I'll be able to do nothing. I'll be able to take it easy and and then uh, the God says to him, you're an idiot, because <laughs> tonight you're going to die. And you just sacrifice the only thing that uh, that is real, the present moment, 
for something that you never had grasp of in the first place, the future. So you're a fool. Uh, so and then in the, in, the, in the end, Jesus says, yeah, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. Um, so that's his first sort of uh, contrasting segment here that he's, that he's putting out there for the crowd. So, Becky, when we think about this section, what distinction is Jesus trying to make here, and why is he trying to make the distinction? What, what hits you about this? That earthly possessions don't matter. <laughs> except they, except, except they do. I mean, we we all have. You you just outfitted your van with some earthly possessions because they do matter. Yep. So when we say I earthly, also, go ahead. I also gave up my entire <laughs> yes. Comfortable house. Oh yeah. P.S. <laughs> to live in a van. P.S. <laughs> so that I could simplify my life so that I could spend more time living presently. But we but so, we but we hear we hear and we know it's true that earthly possessions don't matter. But we also know well they do matter, but what do we mean when we say they don't matter? What do you mean when you say that? They aren't going to matter in the kingdom. What we had here on earth even if however little or however much it was, it's not going to matter when we um when we get to the next stage of this life. Um, and I think also that we don't need to define ourselves by them. Um, that, you know, the guy who's working really hard basically for retirement, right? Who isn't working really hard to get to retirement so that they can rest? I think the balance there is that Jesus is saying you can't work so hard to get to retirement that you forgot to have any kind of relationship with me at all. Um, and there's not, I don't think there's anything wrong with working hard and, and building a retirement. But if you did that at the expense of, oh, I'll get to having a relationship with Jesus when that's done, or, um, or maybe you just didn't think that that was a, a thing to value at all, then you're going to get to your end, at the end of your life. And he's saying you missed the, the only part that really mattered, which was spending time living presently with me. Yeah, I love that. And uh, just going back to what he said at the end, he says, "Yes, a person is uh, a, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God." So he's contrasting the riches of these storehouses, the riches of wealth, as a as something to depend upon and trust, instead of the riches that we experience in our relationship with Jesus as something to depend upon and trust. He's saying. Um, if you build up riches in your relationship with me, the same dynamic is at work here. You will depend upon the riches of your relationship with me. You'll trust that for your very life. And he's trying to encourage us to, to make that relationship rich, to store up riches in our uh, relationship with him so that we can depend upon it as we move through life. And he's saying... The yeast that I think creeps in here is, well, my relationship with Jesus is fine. It's something important for life. But when it comes down to it, I'm really going to depend upon my 401k. Um, that's, yeah. that's where I really have my dependence and trust is, is whatever I'm able to save and guarantee my healthy, thriving life later on. And it's not like saving in your 401k isn't important. He's, he is trying to contrast, though, that okay, go ahead and build that up, but simultaneously, what what's the 401k account with me in our relationship? How how rich is our relationship? 
because he hungers for intimacy with us. He knows the greatest good that can happen in us is a deep trust in his goodness, a trust that permeates us so much that we're able to respond when he says, how come you can't decide for yourself what's right? We can say, I can, because the richness of my relationship with you allows me to live out your heart and mind in my everyday life. That's how rich it is. So he's encouraging us he's, uh, to, to uh, invest in the richness of our relationship with him. Any last thoughts about that before we uh, head to the next one, Becky? Well, just, you know, in addition to that, he also asks us to guard against greed. And greed is what we keep for ourselves and, and not give to other people. Yeah. So we need to be careful. I think he was intentional in pointing that out, that that your riches here are, are meant to be shared. And I follow this woman who is has built um, a million millionaire empire for herself, and she calls herself Millionaire Mom. And... Um, and she's a follower of Jesus. And her thing is, I did this so that I can give. And she does. She gives back to, to women. She gives back to tons of people. And her message has always been that we're here to build wealth so that we can give it back to other people. Mm. And that's the opposite of greed. Mm, that's good. Well, the next section is about where he teaches about money and possessions, but it's actually, I think that's misnamed. He's actually teaching about anxiety. So he's, he's talking here about, well, the way he starts, this is in verse 22, um, he says to his disciples, now this, everything I just said is the reason why I'm telling you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food to eat or enough clothes to wear. Uh, he says, for your life is more than food and your body more than clothing. And then he goes into saying, look at, look at the ravens in the sky, look at the lilies of the field, look at the way God has clothed and taken care of even these inconsequential things in your life, the things that you don't even notice on a daily basis. Look at how God notices them and takes care of them. What's the use of worrying about bigger things if you see how he's taking care of these little things? Which he's he's really getting at our fundamental anxiety as human beings, because we all do worry about these things. What food we're going to eat, how we're going to be clothed, what, what standard of living we're going to have. And he's trying to say again, look, you're trusting— the, the yeast that is growing up in you is the, the trust of things that can make your life fulfilled, safe, and uh, survivable. That's, that, that, the yeast has grown up in you and, and has said, these are the things, the fundamental things to trust. Yeah, 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 you can follow me and trust me, but when it comes down to it, I got to trust those things over here instead. And he's inviting us over again to not be concerned about those things in the context of our trust with him. So he says this in, in verse 32, "'Don't be afraid, little flock.'" So he's speaking very tenderly here to the people. "'Don't be afraid, my little sheep, um, for it gives your Father great happiness to give you what? Give you the kingdom. Give you the kingdom.'" the riches of his kingdom, which is the riches of a relationship with him that infects you and changes who you are and makes you more and more into his image. So then at the very end, he says, so just sell all your possessions and give those to people in need, and instead store up treasure for yourself in heaven, because the purses of heaven never get old 
or develop holes. <laughs> Your treasure is going to be safe there. No one can steal it. No moth can destroy it. And, oh, by the way, where your treasure is, there your de- the desires of your heart will be also. So the same question again, uh, Becky Nader, uh, what distinction that I haven't already mentioned <laughs> is Jesus trying to make here, and why do you think he's trying to make it? I think it's so easy at any point in our, in, in no matter what financial situation we're in, we always have this feeling where we need something else. Right. I mean, I don't know if there's ever been a time in my life where I wasn't praying for something that I needed. But it is quite different when you're in a place where you only have left what you absolutely need or you have almost what you need, but you really do need things. And I know many of you who follow us um, have shared some financial struggles. I know that there's been some recent prayer requests about people who have been unemployed and really getting to that point where it would be dire straits if they didn't find a job. Um, Because I follow these van lifers now, there was a couple who got hit. They were driving um, at night and it was dark and they ran into a herd of elk and their van was completely totaled. And it literally is the only thing that they live in. And that was just such a devastating place to be in. Um, But it also is a blessing at the same time to be in a place where you have to have God show up for you and you see it because you need it so badly. And I think that we always, the reason why we always have to be in a place where we need something is because otherwise we would totally lose dependence on him altogether. Hmm. And, and so I do think that it's totally fine that we worry about this stuff because it, it's worrisome, you know, and he, but he, at the same time, I think that that worrisome when, when we turn it back to him and we say, okay, I'm, I'm trusting you and I know that you can do this. And then we see him show up and provide that piece of bread or that little thing that we needed. Um, it builds such strong and um, impenetrable trust with him. And so we should be, it, it is a blessing. It's such a thankful blessing to be in that place of dependence. Um, and to be able to see him show up in those small ways that are so dire and necessary. Yeah, and, and I love what you're saying here, too, that, that Jesus, of course, recognizes that we feel anxiety about things. He understands that. And in this stretch here, he's also saying, but look, my Father has planted his heart all around you. The birds yeah. of the sky, the flowers of the field, if you stop and pay attention to the yep. particular specific care he has exhibited toward these things. He's trying to show you his heart. He's trying to woo you and to remind you, my heart is good toward you. I love you. I care for you. I've not left you abandoned, even though it seems as though I have sometimes. I haven't. Um, and I want and the flowers that you look at when you're walking on a sidewalk and you see how beautiful they are, I'm intending that they remind you that I care for if I care for those things, how much more do I care for you? Don't forget that I care for you. Take the risk to trust me. This next section he's talking about is in in the Jesus Center Bible. The subheading is "Be ready for the Lord's coming," and he tells two little kind of vignettes here about um, uh, people that are supposed to be awake and alert and ready for him, uh, kind of on the lookout for for uh, their master, and they aren't. Or they're supposed to be uh, carrying out their res- a certain responsibility, and because the master's not around, they kind of slack off. 
Like, you know, I'll look busy when the boss is here. So I, I was just thinking about uh, uh, a week or so ago. It wasn't that long after the Parkland school shooting um, when my wife had to take my daughter Emma to school from a doctor's appointment. And um, our, her school was also the scene of a school shooting four years ago. So there's a heightened awareness in in my daughter's school about school shootings and security. And there's a security guard right past the front door. He has a little kiosk there. And my wife told me that she and my daughter walked up to the kiosk, and the security guard was on his phone. And he did not even notice they were standing there. And they waited for like 30 seconds. And finally, Bev said, excuse me. And the guy looked up, and Bev said, this was disturbing for me because— Anyone could have walked past him. I was standing right in front of him, and he was distracted. So that's kind of a picture of what Jesus is pointing out here in, the, in these two stories, is the security guard is supposed to be awake and alert and ready for whoever's coming through that door, but, you know, because life is the way it is and human beings are the way they are, he's seen a billion people pass him, and he sees the same people every day, and nothing hardly ever happens, so why not sneak a peek at your smartphone? And is something really going to happen? Well, what if my wife had been someone with a, a weapon walking through the front door? This is the point Jesus is trying to make. You don't know when this is going to happen, and so the yeast here is to act as though I don't exist, is to live your life in such a way that you fundamentally communicate, uh, I'm not really real. I can't really see what you're doing. I don't really know what you're what you're about. You can get away with a lot, and then when you're in church, you better clean up your act because I'm definitely there in church. So when you go to church, you need to clean up your act because I uh, that's where I'm where I'm at. So he's trying to say, I think, in in a way to highlight the 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 false yeast here is is the belief that Jesus only shows up in certain aspects of our life, and and you can kind of fool him. You can kind of slack off and not be aware of him in other areas. It kind of compartmentalizes him. So when when uh, when you look at this this uh, uh, kind of section that Jesus is going after here, Becky, what what surfaces for you about what the distinction he's trying to raise? You can't put off um, going all in. I mean, you can't put off you can't put off conversations that you need. To have, or he's been prompting you to have. You can't put off the prompting that you've probably been feeling from him for a while. You can't put off reconciliation if you've been feeling distant. Um, the time to be ready is now, and we never know. We never know when it's going to be, and and it's 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 a better life. It's a better life when it's lived with him. So if you're somebody who has been who's listening to this and you've been putting something off now is the time to be ready. That's good. Love that. The last thing he talks about, I'm just going to read the whole thing because it's so short, and it's it's so uh, so incendiary. <laughs> so this is uh, the heading over this in my Jesus Center Bible, is, is uh, Jesus Causes Division. So here's what he says, I have come to set the world on fire, and I wish it were already burning. I have a terrible baptism of suffering ahead of me, and I'm under a heavy burden until it's accomplished. Do you think... I've come to bring peace to the earth? No. I've come to divide people against each other. From now on, families will be split apart, three in favor of me and two against, or two in favor and three against. And then he quotes from the book of the Old Testament book of Micah, and he says, 
Father will be divided against son, and son against father, and mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, and mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Whoa! What? (laughs) So when we think here about the distinctive that Jesus is trying to contrast here between the yeast that we've invited into ourselves, that that is actually destructive, um, and the yeast he hopes that we take in, what, what pops into your head, Becky? Well, this is not a section of Scripture that's often preached at church. (laughs) I mean, I think that I was just having a conversation the other day about the good Christian life is to just get along with everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Just to be a nice person. Just be nice and have peace. Be at peace with everybody. Um, So I think what he's trying to say is that it's going to get worse. I'm I'm here to disrupt things. I'm not here to make it easy for you. I'm not here for everyone to be at peace. I'm not here for you to avoid conflict. I'm not here for you to avoid suffering. I'm not here so that you don't have to worry about a thing and you can just, you know, sit on the beach and drink my time. That's not <laughs> That's not what I came to do. So if you're looking for a life with Jesus to equal, well, if I do this and I run this formula, then I'm going to be prosperous. And there's lots of Christians out there that are preaching a Christian self-help formula. Um, but this passage is a hard one for them to have to say this. I mean, basically, he just stated his mission statement. And he's going to go on after this, actually, and he's going to continue um, stating his mission statement. Um and it's not as it's not the little lamb that we think about. It's yeah, it's the good. fierce lion. It's this good. The fierce lion. Sorry for interrupting you. That, that was really good. Uh, and I, when I think about this, I think what he's saying is uh, also is um, who who is your primary attachment in life? Um, whose truth are you going to adhere to? And he's saying it's dangerous if you elevate anyone else's truth above mine, because uh, I, I'm just remembering when he encounters the the rich young ruler, and the rich young ruler addresses him as good teacher, and Jesus says, basically, who are you calling good? Did you know that only God is good? What Jesus is saying there is that, that my truth is good to its core, and it's the only truth that is good to its core. So... Um, your other attachments are real, but if your attachment to me doesn't supersede every other attachment, then you are inviting in yeast that could be destructive in your life. He's saying, elevate your attachment to me above everything else. Why? Because I'm a megalomaniac? No, because when you attach to me, you attach to true goodness, and everything I'm about um as you attach to me, will infect your life like yeast and impact every area of your life. He himself, his truths are yeast as well. They get planted in us, and they grow, and they affect the whole loaf. And I think when um, Jesus says, again, that why can't we decide for ourselves, what he's trying to say is that his end game is that we become so transformed in our thoughts and behaviors because we're immersed in Him, that Him controlling us is out of the question. When we say God is in control, 
Actually, Jesus never says that. He's not saying, I want to control your life. He's saying, I want to infect your life. I want to reshape your identity. I want you to be born over again, so that your heart and identity is radically different. And when you're born over again, the heart that you have is inclined toward my heart. The thoughts that you have are inclined toward my thoughts. And if that's the case, then why not decide for ourselves? Because our self has become um, merged into the heart of Jesus. And when we decide for ourselves what is right, uh, we can do that because our self has been transformed by the heart of Jesus. It reflects his heart. We become um, a, a miniature version of him, uh, to use the, the language of grafting, when we're a branch, a dead branch grafted into a vine, which is the metaphor Jesus uses, that uh, graft becomes a mirror image of the vine. And that's what he's hoping for, that we would be uniquely, distinctly who we are, but we would mirror his heart in, in everything we do, including um, decisions we make about what's right. Then they become organic because they flow out of a changed identity. So I thought it would be good to, to close up this podcast, Becky, if just to share a few examples uh, um, from each of us about how we decide what is right in our everyday life in, in sort of a Jesus-dependent way. So, so uh, it's kind of this kind of strange tension. Jesus is inviting us to, to have some independence in, in deciding what is right, but that independence comes up underneath a dependence on Him. So what does that actually look like in our everyday life? So can you think of any examples of what this deciding what's right, how, how that works in your life as you, as you think about your attachment to Jesus? <laughs> I mean, first of all, you have to be able to hear Jesus' voice. And so if you've been listening for a while, it's been all the way, all the way back to the first season, probably episode six of our very first season. So like go all the way to the end. Um, where we did an episode on how to hear Jesus's voice. And I also wrote an article about it that coincided with the, that episode. Um, you have to be able to understand what nudging is coming from you, what nudging is coming from him, what nudging is coming from outside voices, what nudging is coming from the enemy. Um, and to, to be able to decipher those things, and sometimes that means that you have to put yourself in a place where you can hear and you can listen. Um, and that takes a lot of practice and, and it just takes some relaxing because you're going to get it wrong sometimes. And then the more you get it right, the more you'll be like, Oh, I know what that is. Um, but I think there's, there's a few distinct categories in, in everyday decision-making. One of them is, I really need to, I need you to give this decision over to me. Um, and when I start to feel unrest about something, and I've said this before, when I'm doing something that is outside of where God wants me, he has always communicated in complete and total anxiety. Or when I'm walking down a path and nothing will work, everything will stop working. It's not going forward. I usually, that's a good indication that, I'm on the wrong path and it's time to turn around and figure out how I got off track. Um, but when things start to work out for me and it's just like a cadence. So last week, um, I have a weekly call with my BFF staff 
and um, just to catch up on life because, you know, before we sat right next to each other eight hours a day, and now we have to talk on the phone once a week. And I was frustrated because um, the, there were things that weren't going forward with um, the van. It, it, things had stalled out. Um, there were some major roadblocks, like really big roadblocks that were going to possibly make it so that I, I didn't even, at that point a week ago, I did not think I was going to leave um, anytime soon. And I was a little frustrated with that because why would I have moved out of my house and done all of this stuff um, if this wasn't the plan? And then just like that, everything, everything in, in a matter of two days completely came together all at once, and I didn't even have to work at it. Um, I actually just kind of was like, you know what, God, this is your plan, and if it's yours, then you're going to make it happen, and I'm not going to do anything. And I didn't do anything, and it all worked out. So that's an example of when I think I see me following God's will. He makes it easy. He does the work. He um, He takes that dependence, and he puts it into action. Um, so I think that that's the other thing. And But I also think Rick, and you can speak into this, I think that there are decisions that he does not care what we do, um, where it's like, it, you know, you can get caught up in like, well, should I pull out of the driveway on the right side or the left side? Um, and there's some things that I think he's like, uh, that's up to you. Yeah. <laughs> so, and you know, what's fascinating about that, Becky, is that I, I totally agree with what you just said, especially as we get closer and closer to him, more and more infected by his heart. Um, he sort of trusts us to make decisions about things, and it can be as big as career path or town, yeah. town you live in. And it's not as if he is bounded by this linear path of decisions that um, there's only there's this one path that leads to your best good. He's an artist who takes these decisions that we make, and he creates art out of them. Now, if we make decisions that are contrary to his heart— and obviously sinful or uh, impudent or rebellious, um, uh, we are going to suffer consequences from those decisions. It still doesn't mean that he's not going to take the remnants of those decisions as they're yielded to him and make something beautiful out of them. We have consequences for the ways we go, but in the context of uh, a life spent um, in close uh, uh, proximity, in close relationship with the Spirit of Jesus. I totally agree with you. There are times when we, he just wants us to make a decision as best we can, and he wants to be involved in whatever pathway emerges out of that decision. So I would say that, you know, my little bit of practical advice here is, I think one thing is, the, is important to pay attention to. This crops up all the time for me where I'm in a conversation with my wife or with someone else or with myself, and I will say out loud, we can't talk about this or we can't act um, uh, fundamentally uh, as if Jesus didn't exist right now, because that's what we're doing. We are talking about this or we're trying to figure out how to face this challenge as if Jesus does not exist. We are treating this as a self-contained issue that we have to deal with, and oh, yeah, oh, I forgot, I, we didn't invite Jesus into this. So for me, that is the most helpful thing I do on a daily basis. I will say to myself, or say to the person I'm with, we can't forget that we can't act as though Jesus doesn't exist here. We have to invite him back into this conversation, and that inviting can simply mean 
you know, you, it could be as formal as asking him in prayer to be a part of it, but more, more so, it's sort of the lean of your soul. Instead of operating as if you were a solitary person um, in this, now the lean of your soul is, Jesus, I care about what you have to say about this. Jesus, I want your influence into this. Jesus, I invite your influence into this. Show us the way. And his influence then can be in a thousand different ways. He might speak directly to you with uh, clarity. You might get a sense of what the right direction is to go. He might The direction might come from moving forward, but it quickly hitting a brick wall, and you sense, no, this is not the right way to go. Once you invite his guidance and direction into um, whatever it is you're doing, you're still an independent person, but you're you're living dependently at that point. You're inviting his influence. And I guess that's what I would say, uh, uh, gang, is find a way that works for you to remember to invite his influence. Um, and I would say if you're a person who hasn't been in practice with— inviting Jesus into your decision-making, that probably a good idea is for a while, invite him into everything. Because you are in a place where it's kind of like starting to run again. You can't, you have to do it all the time in order to get good at running. And so you have to practice it like a discipline. And But if you're in a place where you can't seem to move in any direction because if he doesn't tell you what to do, then you don't know what to do. And I would say that you need to, to practice um, letting God trust you um, and believing that he does trust you. And if, if you've gotten into a place where you're paralyzed in your life, it could be because he's saying, I want you to, I want, I trust you and I want you to start making some decisions. And it's like, like a toddler, you know, taking baby steps for the first time, you may have been in a place where for so long you've been used to him telling you every turn to make, and if he doesn't, then you you get stuck. So believe that he does trust you in making decisions and that he, as long as you're not harming someone or sinning or, you know, acting in greed or um, that you can you can make choices for yourself and he will support you in those choices. That's great. Thank thank you. And thanks, Becky Nader, for being a part of this uh, again today. It's so great to have you back, and we'll have you back again not too long from now, I hope, uh, 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 as long as you're not in parts unknown in your van at the time. But uh, even then, we will connect with Becky Nader. So, um, gang, thanks you so much for listening today. Remember that you can find out more information about everything we've talked about today, but in further detail on that Website I've told you about before, PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. This one, uh, the one you're listening to now, is Podcast Season 3, Episode 11. And don't forget, The Unreasonable Jesus has just released on March 6th, so go to group.com if you want to check that out. Uh, it's a great companion to uh, this podcast, is to be in the presence of The Unreasonable Jesus. So, so check that out, and uh, next week we'll explore the last of the three little Jesus-centered practical guides we've been talking with Michael Kiefer about. The last one is, How Do I Know God's Will?, which will flow right out of what Becky was talking about just just now. So next week we'll talk about that. And uh, Becky, uh, we'll talk to you again in a, in a few weeks, I hope. All right, bye! Remember, gang, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, a podcast from Lifetree. Subscribe to us on iTunes for all the latest podcasts. We'll talk again next time.